You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Polysexuals, those are people who experience attraction to people of multiple genders. Polysexuals are not to be confused with omnisexuals, those are people who experience attraction to people of all genders, who are not to be confused with bisexuals, people who experience attraction to two or more genders, who are not to be confused with pomosexuals, those are people who don't adhere to sexual orientation labels and, quote, tend to resist conventional methods of categorizing sexuality which is why they needed their own category. And of course, polysexual people are not to be confused with polyamorous people who have more than one committed romantic partner. A polyamorous person can be polysexual and a polysexual person can be polyamorous, but not all people who are one kind of poly are both kinds of poly. I learned all this reading a 10,000 word explainer on polysexuality published on the website Queerty last week. What is polysexual? Unpacking the term. There was a whole section in that unpacker on the myths and misconceptions people tend to have about polysexual people, which is kind of hilarious and mind-bending when you think about it, because it's actually hard to have a misconception about something you literally have no concept of because you've never heard of it, because someone made it up two minutes ago, or because it's not a thing, or maybe it is a thing, but it was already a thing, and that thing already had a name or two names in this case, by and pan, and we didn't need another one or another two. One really easy way to tell that polysexual is just another word for bisexual is by reading the myths and misconceptions section of this unpacker at Queerty. By some non-miraculous non-coincidence, all those myths and misconceptions about polysexuals are the same myths and misconceptions people tend to have about bisexuals. That they always cheat, that they're hypersexual, that they're really gay, Yeah, what's not true about bisexuals also isn't true about polysexuals because polysexuals are bisexuals by another name, another confusing and unnecessary name. A conservative is someone who stands athwart history yelling stop. I'm not a conservative. I am no William F. Buckley fan. I have no interest in standing athwart queer history yelling stop. But right now, I kind of want to yell or not yell. I'm not a yeller. I kind of want to mutter under my breath into a microphone, which I guess makes it morally indistinguishable from yelling. I kind of want to yell, not stop. I don't want to yell stop, but maybe give it a rest. That's enough for now. That'll do pig time to wrap this conclave up, send some smoke up the chimney and turn our attentions away from just how thinly we can slice sexual orientation and gender identity and how many pride flags and pronouns we can wave around and worry instead about, I don't know, anything else like the 10-year-old rape victim in Ohio who was denied an abortion last week. Look, I know people can do more than one thing at a time and no one can focus on the horrible things that are going on 24 hours a day. Last week, I worried about abortion rights myself and donated money to abortionfunds.org. And I made time to read a biography of Catherine Howard, Henry VIII's fifth wife, Young, Damned, and Fair by Gareth Russell. It's terrific. I recommend it. 
I also went for a long bike ride and ate dinner at a nice restaurant with family and took a moment to retweet a story about Republicans in Minnesota accidentally legalizing weed edibles. Because those things, all those things, royal biographies, bike rides, nice restaurants, Republicans doing the right thing by accident, which is the only way they ever do the right thing, all those things give me pleasure. And I guess, uh, I guess if coming up with new names for bisexuality gives someone out there pleasure, I'm not going to tell you to stop. But maybe pause, pump the brakes, leave the house, go get laid. I've been trying to think about why this one story about a sexual orientation that no one I know identifies with annoyed me so much. So much so that I'm talking about it at the top of my show and not just ignoring it like a sane person would. I think the reason I'm talking about it right now, I think the reason it annoys me so much is because it feels like games are being played here. My people are playing games here. The alphabet people are. My fellow queers. And I don't think these are fun games. They're not games like Schnapsen or Troke or Talk. Shout out to my Schnapsen, Troke, and Talk partners who also listen to my show. Those are my favorite pants-on games. You are my favorite pants-on game partners. But this game, the name and pride flag and 10,000-word explainer on queer websites game, it feels not just stupid, not just pointless because no one is going to remember all this shit. It feels stupid and pointless, I guess, unless the point is to stress people out. Reading about polysexuality and being importuned to know the difference between polysexuality, bisexuality, pansexuality, omnisexuality, and homosexuality, it feels like being set up to fail because no one can keep this shit straight. And you know when the inevitable happens, when you're not up on the latest lingo or heard it once but didn't memorize it, when you finally fall into the trap you saw being set for you, the people who set the trap for you are going to claim you've wronged them and oppressed them. <sighs> In conclusion, let me say for the record, okay, sure, polysexual, not to be confused with polyamorous, not to be confused with bisexual, pansexual, omnisexual, homosexual. But anything that requires a 10,000-word explainer, I'd also like to say, to prevent people from being confused, was designed to confuse people. And people are stressed out enough right now without feeling like being an ally to or a member of the LGBTQIA community is a vocabulary test you're doomed to fail by design. But hey, distractions are welcome. Most of my show is a distraction. I just hope, in addition to the unserious stuff, we're all allowed to distract ourselves with Wordle for you, Catherine Howard for me, 10,000 word explainers distinguishing polysexuality from bisexuality for you. None of us are neglecting the serious stuff we also need to be doing right now. The organizing, the fundraising, the registering of people to vote, the resisting, and the assisting. And also, let's make sure the distractions we're enjoying or creating aren't making things worse. All right, speaking of, I think, I hope, welcome distractions, the call for submissions for the Hump 2023 Film Festival has officially gone out. All the info you need to make or star in a Hump film or make and star in a Hump film is up now at humpfilmfest.com slash submit. Coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. Joining me on the Magnum, Dr. Ina Park returns to talk about HPV. Should people over 50 get the HPV vaccine? 
And I kept her on the line to talk about monkeypox. When I raised the alarm about monkeypox at the top of the show back in May, there were 100 cases worldwide. Now there are more than 5,000 cases, and 99% of those cases are among gay and bi men. How worried should we all be? Dr. Park is here to let us know on the Magnum. Hi, Dan. This is a 39-year-old gay cis man from the Northeast. The current situation is I've been with my partner of three years, and... We're at the point where I would really like to open up our relationship and start practicing ethical non-monogamy. He is not particularly on board with this as he believes that non-monogamy is a sign of relationship problems and not of a healthy relationship, which I disagree with. And that's a conversation for another day, I guess. But here's my question. So my partner is kinky. He's into feet. He's into other kinds of stuff that I have indulged him in the past. Like I'm GGG. I'll pretty much do whatever he asks for in terms of his sexual needs. And I'm happy to oblige. My question is, is ethical non-monogamy considered a kink or a fetish? Because I'm wondering if if I approach this from a, well, I'm working with you on your kink and indulging that, why do you have a hard time reciprocating um, when I've identified that my desire for my sexual outlet and repertoire is to add some ethical non-monogamy? I'm just curious what you think. If this approach, you think this approach might help or if... I'm completely off here and it's not connected to kink at all. I'm curious to hear what you think. Instead of relabeling your desire to engage in ethical non-monogamy, to introduce ethical non-monogamy into your committed relationship with your partner of three years, instead of relabeling that as a kink, as your kink, I think it would be better if you tackle directly your partner's worry that opening the relationship or an open relationship is a sign of the weakness of that relationship. And there is data, there is research out there to back up the position that an open relationship, rather than being a sign that the relationship is unstable in a gay male couple is often a sign of the opposite. Stephanie Kuntz, who literally wrote the book on marriage, Marriage, a History, How Love Conquered Marriage, wrote up for the New York Times a couple of years ago, the results of a study titled Marital Strain and Psychological Distress in Same-Sex and Different-Sex Couples. The study involved 400 different couples, straight ones, gay ones, lesbian ones. And while they found that gay male couples were the least likely to be monogamous, researchers found that gay male couples, their relationships, their marriages, once they were married, once they were committed, were the most stable. Quoting from Stephanie Kuntz's op-ed in the New York Times, notably, however, while the dating relationships of male couples are less stable than those of female-female or male-female couples, their formalized unions are as stable as those of heterosexuals and more stable than formalized female-female unions. A lot of queer people, even queer people, get this wrong. They look at lesbians who are likelier to be monogamous and think their marriages are consequently more stable because they are doing monogamy, not non-monogamy, ethical or otherwise. And the opposite is true. 
Gay male relationships, which are less likely, gay male marriages, committed relationships, not dating relationships, which are less likely to be monogamous than lesbian relationships, those gay male marriages, more stable. That's what I would go to your partner with. Us opening the relationship isn't a bad sign about its stability. It's a good sign, potentially. And when you think about it, when you zoom out to 30,000 feet and really think about it, why do a lot of couples wind up who are in monogamous relationships wind up breaking up? Well, somebody cheats or somebody just is bored and wants out. And the only way they can satisfy their desire for something new sexually, they can satiate their sexual boredom is to end the relationship if it is a monogamous commitment. So you're going to have to press the issue and relabeling your desire to open the relationship as a kink, I don't think is the way to go about it. Appeal to your partner's concern that this would be a bad sign about your relationship beginning to fall apart or disintegrate. Perhaps if you're committed, if you're married or if you get married, it could be seen as or should be seen as the opposite, as a good sign. In a lot of gay male relationships, some allowance for outside sexual contact Far from being a destabilizing influence, the data, the research seems to suggest very strongly that it is the opposite, that it is a stabilizing influence in our marriages, in our relationships. All that said, you know, talk about people who are PUD, poly under duress, or open under duress, out. It may be that you're going to have to say to your partner, look, I, I need this. I need to be in an open relationship. I need some allowance for being with other men. We can do this as a DADT, a don't ask, don't tell arrangement. I'd prefer for it to be honest and above board. But if this is the price of admission that he has to pay to stay with you, you may wind up in a place where he grudgingly agrees to this to keep you. Or you may wind up in a place where if this is a non-negotiable for you, an open relationship is what you need to be happy where he exits the relationship because he can't agree to openness. There are monogamous gay male couples out there. There are gay men who want to be in monogamous relationships. Your current partner may be one of those men. If that's what he wants over the long haul, over the next five decades that you're both alive, fingers crossed, well, then you guys may not be right for each other. Hey, Dan, mid-30s, cis guy living in on the East Coast. Um, I had a question. Basically, when I was in a relationship with my ex, um, I had no problem getting hard pretty regularly. Like three to four times a day, we usually used to have sex, and that was great. But recently, I've noticed now that I'm single again, sometimes I have trouble. And it doesn't even seem to be correlating with anything. Like one person I slept with, I couldn't really, I could only really get hard one time after that. I couldn't really do much. Now, the girl was also kind of like giving up on trying to get me hard. She would just like, you know, kind of trip me off for like 10 seconds and it wouldn't get hard and she would give up. And I told her you need to do that longer in order for it to work. But uh, but then it was kind of weird because then I was making out with someone else and I was just getting hard naturally without any stimulation just in my pants. I don't seem to see any correlation there. Is there a way for me to restore that level of uh, constant arousal? without the confines of a relationship or am I just working with a dick that's perhaps trained for monogamy? Maybe your dick is designed for or built for monogamy and that would be nice and that would be 
the first dick like that. Or maybe you're attaching too much meaning and importance to this one experience with a partner you didn't click with. In your last relationship, you say that you and your previous partner were having sex three to four times a day with no problem. You also say you're in your mid-30s. Maybe you are aging out of reliable erections for intercourse three or four times a day. That is a thing that happens to men as they age. Maybe that's happening to you right now. And it has nothing to do with being, you know, with a familiar partner or an unfamiliar new partner. But the woman you were with where you got it up once and you were able to get off once and then you couldn't get it up again. Okay. Maybe you were just done. Maybe your dick was just done and you shouldn't get too much in your head about it lest you do your own dick in. And you say that she was jacking you off, but she wasn't jacking you off just right. And you couldn't get hard again. And you were thinking, maybe you even said you need to do that longer for that to work. Well, you could have taken matters into your own hands at that moment. If obtaining an erection at that moment was really important to you and stroked yourself until you were hard again while you rolled around with that woman and made out or did some other things. If she was still interested in sex, you know, maybe she was only giving you a half-hearted hand job at that point because she was done and didn't want another go around. And maybe you were picking up on that vibe from her that she was done and didn't want to have another go around, which is why she wasn't really invested in masturbating you, jacking you off the way you needed to be jacked off. And that chased your dick away. That perhaps subconscious realization that she wasn't really into it, certainly wasn't invested in jacking you off just the way you needed to be jacked off. But then you were with somebody else rolling around and you were hard. You were making out and you were hard. So trust that your dick is fine and that your dick will be there for you when you need your dick. You want to be confident in your dick. And remember what the actors say. All, all the Every actor I know, every professional actor I know says performance anxiety is that it's most intense on opening night because the stakes are high. The critics are in the house. If you screw up that performance on opening night with the critics in the house, the show might get a lousy review and have to close. So with your previous partner and you're remembering that relationship, you know, backwards through the prism of, you know, how things were working at the end, probably not remembering how things were working at the beginning, you were confident, you had a groove with your previous partner and that was a show, that was a long running show and you knew your lines and your marks. With a new partner, you're probably going to be a little bit more nervous and you need to give yourself a break. Yeah. If you got it up once and got off once, maybe that's enough with the new partner. Maybe you're not going to have sex three or four times in a day with that new partner. Maybe that new partner doesn't want to have sex with you another three or four times, or maybe not ever again, maybe not even one more time. Just relax. Trust that your dick still works, that you can still get hard. You can still get off. You did with that woman who didn't give you the great hand job after you'd had sex with her once and you were able to get hard when you're making out with the next woman. Don't stress about this. Allowing yourself to become anxious about this is the quickest route to giving yourself, creating for yourself a crippling case of performance anxiety going forward. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. This is a cis hetero female from Seattle, 33 years old, calling with a question about kissing. So I've been dating this guy for several months and I like him, 
but I hate the way he kisses. He does this thing where he will nibble on my lips and he really focuses on my lips. I really dislike it. And recently, I'm not sure if it's connected, have started getting kind of rashy lips that's kind of dry and sensitive. And so I've asked him in the past to stop nibbling on my lips and he will dial it a lot back, but he just does it very, very lightly. <laughs> and I've also told him that I enjoy tongue more, but he says that he doesn't like kissing like that because you have to turn your head more. So my question is, since I don't think he's capable of changing the way he kisses, is this a valid reason to break up with someone if basically everything else is fine, but you just never want to kiss that person because of the way that they kiss? If you like everything else about a person, except for the way they kiss, you can certainly stay in that relationship and just not kiss them. And that early in the relationship, you say you recently started dating this guy, that kind of early in the relationship, making out all the time, drinking gallons of that person's spit, tends to drop off the longer you're in a relationship. Kissing becomes less, I don't know, less of the pastime, less of a main event than it is at the beginning, the longer you're in a relationship. So this may annoy you less over time just because you may find yourself kissing this guy less over time. But what concerns me is that you asked him to stop and it didn't stop. Stop asking him to stop. Start telling him to stop. When he starts nibbling your lips, which I have to say sounds really fucking annoying, put your hands on his shoulders and move him back a step and tell him, I don't like that. Don't do that. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, stop. Let it ruin the moment. Because it's certainly ruining the moment for you. Because not only you're getting kissed in a way that feels annoying, not only you're getting kissed in a way that you are thinking in the back of your mind, my lips are going to be chapped later. He's telling you at that moment that he either doesn't care how you feel or can't recall when he's turned on or can't prioritize your feelings, can't keep them in mind, in the front of his mind, either because his dick is harder or just because he's incapable of doing so. Either way, kind of disqualifying. So yeah, if you can't get him to stop, this is a valid, absolutely a valid reason to break up with someone. Not only doesn't he kiss you how you'd like to be kissed, he doesn't respect you enough to stop kissing you the way you hate being kissed. Hi, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 30-something gay cis guy on the West Coast, and I have a question about setting boundaries in poly relationships when it's my husband's relationship and not mine. My husband and I have been together for more than 10 years and have been open for most of the relationship, but about a year ago, we opened the door to a more poly or emotional connection with other guys. I recently met my husband's friend, uh, that's my husband's term, and I've left those interactions feeling hurt. In particular, because of how the meetings happened, I didn't feel like I had a choice about meeting him. I felt pulled into interactions that make me feel like my agency is getting pushed aside and sort of like my being there is in furtherance of their relationship. I know there's not a blueprint, and I've had a number of ups and downs on how I feel about opening this poly door in general. 
Thankfully, my husband and I have really strong communication and a really strong relationship. But figuring out these boundaries has been tough for me. For the most recent interaction the friend invited me to, I told my husband I didn't plan to go, but would if it was important to him that I be there. And I ended up leaving that situation feeling the same way as before. How can I better set my boundaries in my husband's relationship with his friend without getting myself even more involved in their relationship? I don't want to be involved, and I already feel like an asshole for telling my husband I don't want anything to do with his friend and would feel like an asshole telling his friend I don't want to be his buddy and to leave me alone when we inevitably cross paths. I don't want to be more involved, but maybe I have to be more direct to figure this out. You have a boundary. You just have to set it. You don't want to have a friendship or a relationship with your husband's, let's not call him a friend, let's call him your husband's boyfriend. You don't want to hang out with him. You don't want to chit chat. You don't want to be confronted, I guess, with the reality of what is now a a poly situation, not just an open relationship, not just your husband, fuck some dude, but your husband is dating some other dude and you are uncomfortable interacting with that dude for reasons. And it is Not a great idea for your husband or his boyfriend to force you into situations where you're going to have to interact with him or you're going to feel obligated to because you want to observe certain social norms around not being a rude-ass motherfucker, not declining invitations that your husband, you know, from his boyfriend, that your husband knows are going to make you feel put on the spot and awkward and cause conflict, be an engine of conflict in your marriage. So your husband needs to run a little interference for you. That said, the standard you seem to want to apply just for the boyfriend to leave you alone when you cross paths. What do you mean by that exactly? Leave you alone. Does that mean you don't want to have to acknowledge him? You don't want to have to make eye contact? You don't want to have to say hello? You don't want to have to be civil or polite to your husband's boyfriend? Well, that to me seems unfair. That to me seems unkind to your husband's boyfriend and puts him in a really awkward position and puts your husband in a really awkward position where you are telegraphing to his boyfriend that you can't tolerate or can barely tolerate his existence and that you are unhappy about his relationship with your husband. And if you're going to have a poly open kind of relationship, you have to at least be capable. You don't have to be best friends with your husband's boyfriend or your husband's regular piece on the side or your husband's fuck buddy. But if you're going to be thrown together in bars or at parties or at social events that you can't avoid being thrown together, you have to at least be able to be civil and polite to this person who exists and who has feelings. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't be attempting to do the poly thing at all. If you can't do that, that's evidence that you're not cut out for this, that you can't give your husband what he's asking for, that maybe the pivot to poly was a mistake. This could also be a transitional stage. It may be that you're feeling awkward about the existence of this person and this person 
that your husband has not just a sexual relationship with, but an emotional connection to a romantic connection with a, you know, an ongoing romantic connection with that. This is new and different and you're having feelings. And right now you need to not have those nerve endings sandpapered in quite the way that having to interact with him or being at parties with him or him being overly friendly or overly familiar with you feels insensitive and uncaring for you right now. And you just need time to, to, to acclimate. And maybe that's what you're feeling is sort of rushed, not into poly, but into a kind of varsity level poly kitchen sink poly. There's a reason that there's an expression for a kind of poly where the people who are in, you know, polyamorous triads and polyamorous relationships hang out with each other's partners. There's a term for that kitchen sink poly. It means everyone can sit around the kitchen. It's kitchen sink. Oh my God. I always say that kitchen table. It means everyone can always, everyone can sit around the kitchen table and be chill and have dinner together and talk about stuff. That's not the relationship. And there's a term for that kind of poly because not everybody doing poly is doing that kind of poly. So if you still want to do poly, go to your husband and say, stop rushing me to what Dan Savage invariably calls in error, kitchen sink poly, kitchen table poly, and just let's be poly for right now. But I don't want to hang out with your boyfriend and I don't want to be asked by your boyfriend to hang out because I don't want to have to say no to your boyfriend for him to think there's something wrong or whatever. I just want my feelings prioritized at this moment by my fucking husband. That's you. You should prioritize my feelings and not force me into interactions that I'm not ready for. But the bone you're going to throw your husband and his boyfriend is that you will be civil. They do not have to leave you alone. His boyfriend does not have to leave you alone when you cross paths. You will say hello, and then you will get the fuck away from him. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old gay cis man living in Southern California. I'm calling because for a long time I've been really anxious about pursuing casual sexual relationships with guys. And I've even broken off budding romantic relationships because of my aversion to or nervousness around having sex. I've spent a lot of time researching and soul searching and talking to therapists about possibly being asexual, but I don't think that identity is a great fit for me as I do desire to have sex and I fantasize about it a lot and even enjoy it on the rare occasion that I'm able to move past my mental barriers and get down to it. There's no history of trauma in my past other than some less than stellar relationships when I was in my early 20s. And the closest explanation I've come to to explain my reticence is a combination of some lingering body image issues from when I was younger mixed with a sense of shame around my lack of experience since I don't have sex very often and I don't want to let down any potential partners when I do. Which all kind of becomes a vicious cycle since that fear prevents me from getting the experience I want, which would make me feel more confident. I really want to be able to move past this mental block, but I'm not sure how. I've tried going on Grinder to attempt to break the logjam by just powering through my insecurities, but I always end up chickening out before actually meeting up with anyone. Similarly, I, if I go out with a, a guy in a more romantic setting, I'll often just come up with an excuse to leave when things are going to take a sexual turn. Do you have any advice on how to actually follow through with engaging in sex before my insecurities get the better of me? 
one of the tropes of the sex advice industrial complex is trust your gut. We're always telling people in the moment to trust their guts. And if something doesn't feel right or someone is giving you a bad vibe, to trust your gut and get out of there. But if every time you're chatting with someone on Grindr or you're on a date with someone, if every single time your gut tells you to run, well, then you're going to have to overrule your gut, not trust your gut. That said, you know, if you're insecure because you're inexperienced, there are other inexperienced guys out there. You can look for other inexperienced guys and explore together. That can be a baseline that you share where you're both inexperienced. So neither of you is going to be looking at the other expecting, you know, with just going into that sexual encounter with really high expectations around swinging from chandeliers or some Oscar worthy sexual performance. On the flip side though, if you put it out there that you're inexperienced and a little nervous, well, you may attract the attention of some people who want to leverage or exploit your inexperience and you'll want to be on the lookout for them. And it doesn't sound like, you know, at 29, you've had a couple of relationships and you've been out there for a while. You're not naive. So I don't think you're going to be taken advantage of by someone who's trying to leverage your inexperience against you to get what they want or to abuse you physically, sexually, or emotionally. Uh, but what you may attract are some guys who find your inexperience hot, alluring, sexy. There are guys out there who get off on breaking newbies in or relatively inexperienced guys in. I had a friend back in the day with a very big dick and his whole thing. He was by. He really enjoyed teaching someone, male or female, how to deep throat, how to take a dick down their throat, how to swallow a dick. And he enjoyed, this wasn't altruism on his part. It wasn't a mission of mercy. He got off on it. But what he got off on was the dynamics of really explaining it, of really walking someone through it, of making them feel comfortable doing it and making, you know, helping them develop this skill set. So then they could go off and do this with other guys without having to be talked through it. But what he got off on was really that, that process, training someone to open up their throat and swallow his dick. He's not the only one out there who gets off on that kind of dynamic. If you're honest about who you are and your inexperience and your nervousness, you may attract some guys like him who are not there to leverage your naivete to take advantage of you, but into basically training you, basic training of you. All that said, if there are more garden level variety insecurities at play here, if you're just nervous about being seen in the light, well, turn the lights off and tell the guy that you're going to turn the lights off. If you're nervous about, uh, you know, their expectations around what's going to be on the menu. If you consent to sex that they're going to expect that they get to fuck you, just put it out there before the first time you mess around that you'd like to, you know, limit it to mutual masturbation or oral or rolling around. One of the great things I think about being gay and going to bed with a member of the same sex for the first time 
is, as I've said before on the show, maybe you've heard me talk about them, the four magic words, what are you into? When a man and a woman get to consent, an opposite sex couple, usually the conversation about sex stops because a man and a woman get to consent, they get to yes, they're gonna have sex, and PIV is assumed. When two men go to bed together for the first time, they get to yes, and the conversation about sex continues. You need to hang out with a guy who's interested in you sexually long enough to get to that conversation about sex, the what are you into. And at that moment, if there are certain sex acts or expectations that you fear that he may have that make you feel insecure about what you're going to be capable of doing or expected to do, put it out there that, you know, the first time I mess around with a guy, all I want to do is make out and a little oral and some mutual masturbation, whatever it is that you're comfortable doing. If taking anal off the menu makes you more comfortable and likelier than to stick around and hang out and have that sex, gain that experience, maybe feel more comfortable with that person and want to hook up with them again and then move on to some things that you haven't done or that you feel more insecure about, but you feel safe with them, exploring those things, great, you'll be able to do that. But if you bail and run at every opportunity, if your gut is telling you, to get up and go or to not meet up with anybody off grinder that you make a connection with and you feel good about. Yeah. You're going to have to overrule your gut or you'll never get your guts rearranged. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth trans 30 something polyamorous pan girl from the Midwest. I'm calling cause I kind of just broke up with a partner. Entered into a polyamorous triad about six months ago after leaving a long-term relationship. Um, One of my partners and I are getting along really well and we're having a blast. The other partner I just broke up with on uh, yesterday. Uh, I reached out and met somebody online that was a dom and was negotiating, meeting up, getting to know each other, possibly playing. We talked for a couple weeks. It was really cool because they sought me out. We got along really well. We clicked. They were really nice. I was really excited. And this is kind of a first for me. Um, We met up at a Pride event. We had a blast, had a lot of fun. Uh, And so we all went back to the house. Um, I introduced them to my partners at the beginning of the day because they might be in the house and that's the polite thing to do. But when we got back, my partner proceeded to kind of talk about her preferences and what she likes in play. And that's fine because we normally talk about that stuff really openly. She then proceeded to ask my company if they wanted to play at that moment. And then she asked me if I was okay with it. I'm not going to tell two consenting adults no. But I was definitely not uncomfortable with it. And I felt kind of wrong. They've been around the block for a long time. They've been in the King community for a decade. So they've had a lot of experiences. And this would have been my first experience with a Dom. So I kind of felt really wronged in this moment. And so I, after sleeping on it, decided to break up with them the next day. Do I have a leg to stand on here? Is this regular in the poly kink community? Because I feel like this was kind of a dense thing to do. Absolutely, that was a dense thing your former partner did. Dense, rude, thoughtless, inconsiderate. Uh, And what a complicated mess of a situation you're in. You've only been in this poly triad for six months. You all live together. You've broken up with one of your partners in this poly triad, but presumably not the other partner. 
in the polytriad. So you are still wrapped up in this polytriad, but rather than a triad relationship, it is now a V-shaped polytriad where you're both in a relationship, you and your ex-partner, both in a relationship with one person. You're all under the same roof. Ugh, ugh, ugh. That is maybe you guys all moved in together really quickly because of you know, your economic circumstances or getting out of your previous relationship. But this is a really good argument. Your current living arrangements slash predicament for not moving in with people too quickly. It's curious that the Dom in this story that you introduced to your partners slash roommates seems to have no agency said nothing, did nothing when your roommate or ex partner, when she moved in on him, when she attempted to swipe the Dom out from under you or from on top of you, I guess Doms are tops. They said nothing that Dom, they said nothing at that point. They were just an inert and helpless lump of dominance. What did they say at that moment? And I really feel that you need to, in the future, in the moment, advocate for yourself. Your thoughtless, clueless, dense and considerate, rude, selfish, former partner, when you were still together at that moment, when you invited the Dom over and you were all talking about your interests and preferences, they asked you if you were okay with them hooking up with your Dom or with her you used she pronouns in reference to your former partner with her hooking up with the Dom that you had brought over and been chatting with for a couple of weeks and that you were excited to play with. They asked, she asked if you could, if be all right with that, if it was okay with you for her to hook up with the Dom that you had been flirting with for a couple of weeks, either instead or concurrently, but it sure sounds like instead Were you clear at that moment that you were going to play with this Dom imminently and that's why you had brought that Dom over? And when your former partner asked if you were okay with it, did you tell her, could you have told her no? What kind of vibe was the Dom giving off at that point? Was the Dom at that moment clearly telegraphing that they were more interested in Playing with your former partner than playing with you? Was it not just your former partner who was being shitty at this moment, but this not inert lump of dominance that was the Dom that you had been flirting with a couple of weeks? Mm. Such a complicated mess of a situation. But the question you ask is, do you have a leg to stand on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Relationships are at-will occupations. If you don't want to be in that relationship, whatever relationship you're in, You're free to exit it. This is going to be a complicated exit because you are still in a relationship with your ex, no longer in a polytriad with them where you have a relationship with them, but they are your metamor now because they are in a relationship with someone that you are in a relationship with, the third leg of this polytriad stool, and you still live together. So I would encourage you maybe to engage in some de-escalating conversations, communications with your former partner with the one leg of the stool that you snapped off yesterday? What were they thinking? What was she thinking at that moment? Was she thinking with her clit? Was she not being considerate? Did she not, does she not have the emotional intelligence to realize that that would hurt your feelings? 
And that was not, you know, moving in on somebody else's hookup trick, dom, date, whatever, at that moment was a rude and inconsiderate thing to do. And can she come through with an apology and an explanation that makes you feel better? Not better enough to get back into a relationship with her. Maybe that's off the table. But at least diffuses the tension that's going to exist, seeing as you two live together and are going to continue to be in relationship with one another, if not in a relationship with one another. And what does the Dom have to say? I'm really curious. What does the Dom have to say about all of this? Are you still in communication with the Dom? Are you still intending to play with the Dom? Curious listeners want to know. Hey, Dan. I'm a single white male, early 50s, upper Midwest. I have a question about the HPV vaccine. I've been told that uh, since I'm above 45 that there's really no use for me to get it. But I've heard other doctors say that regardless that they would still get it. And the cost is, you know, upwards of $1,000 for the three-shot regimen. I'm just kind of confused. Is this something that I should be getting even though I am in my early 50s or should I just quit worrying about it and go about my day? Joining me to help tackle this question or actually answer it because it is above my pay grade, Dr. Ina Park, professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, medical consultant at the CDC Division of STD Prevention and author of the terrific memoir, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Welcome back to the Savage Lovecast, Dr. Park. I'm so excited to be here, Dan. Uh, so let's dispatch with this quickly because there's actually something else I'd like to talk with you about. The mm -hmm. CDC recommends that people, male and female people, everybody get vaccinated against HPV between the ages of 11 and 12 up to mm -hmm. age 26. He's 50-something. Should he get vaccinated? Okay, so this is not a simple yes or no answer, Dan, but... Um, the vaccine has been tested in terms of a safety standpoint up to the age of 45. And so, in fact, in the United States, it's licensed for folks regardless of gender. And you can give it as young as age nine and up to the age of 45. Now, let's say this person's in their 50s, right? And um, in terms of whether or not you could give the vaccine, you certainly could give it. It's called you know giving something off-label, meaning it's not licensed for folks above that age. But let's say he's the 50-something-year-old virgin and he you know, hasn't had a lot of sex partners before, it is possible that he could stand to benefit. Um, you know, His body will certainly generate antibodies. Um, they are much higher than the normal levels that you get when you have a natural infection. So he could get some protection, but here's the issue. Um, because it's not licensed for folks above the age of 45, most likely insurance wouldn't pay for it. So we're talking probably at least um, $600 um, of his own money that he'd have to spend out of pocket. And then we don't know for sure that it's going to help. But I'll tell you what I suspect if I look into my crystal ball, that um, if he hasn't been exposed to a lot of HPV types already, there are nine types in that vaccine. And so he could benefit with protection from the types he hasn't already been exposed to. But some of us have been around the block a lot by that age, Dan. And if we have... I don't know what you mean to imply, <laughs> but please do go on. I'm not mentioning any names. And we're not counting numbers or notches on one's belt or bedpost. But what I'm saying is, if you've been exposed to HPV, you will get no benefit for those types you've already been exposed to. 
And if you've been around the block a lot, then you've probably been exposed to multiple types. And then again, you're going to get zero benefit from the types you've already been exposed to, unfortunately. We're making an assumption here. Uh, you know what HPV is? I know what HPV is. I feel oh, like we've yeah. been talking about HPV for 30 years. Yeah. I was talking about it before the vaccine came along. Mm-hmm. I was an mm-hmm. advocate of the vaccine, appalled at the resistance to the vaccine from fundamentalist Christian lunatics yeah. back in the day. For <laughs> new listeners... Yeah. And people who haven't been along for the ride, what is HPV and what does the vaccine do? So, well, it stands for human papillomavirus, but it is the common cold of the genitals. I want you to understand. It's like a normal consequence of being a sexually active person. So it doesn't have to be penetrative sex. I'm talking oral sex, rubbing up against somebody. It's that easy to transmit. It just gets transmitted by skin to skin contact. There's over 200 types now actually classified, about 40 of them can affect the genitals and they can cause cancer of the anus, the vagina, vulva, you know, um, the penis, I mean, and and certainly of, as well of the mouth and the throat. So, but, but for most people, it's not a big deal. For most people, it does nothing. But in rare cases, cervical cancer, throat cancer, anal cancer, which is why it's so wonderful that we have this vaccine that prevents uh, HPV, uh, and then protects people who might otherwise, you know, had they gotten infected through routine sexual activity from progressing that small number of people who will progress or develop cervical cancer, anal cancer, uh, throat cancer. And so this is a spectacular achievement for science, it medicine. Is, yes. It is the home run, I think, in the field of sexually transmitted infection. And I want everyone who's listening, you know what I mean, who is 45 years of age or under, who hasn't gotten vaccinated if you're changing partners like, and you could get exposed to new HPV types, go out and get it. There's not, you know, I don't really see a lot of downsides here. But if you do get, if you do get the, you go out and get the vaccine, but if you yes. do get the virus, if you are exposed, don't yes. overreact. People lump HPV in with herpes and then lump both into HIV and just have these overreactions. For most people, HPV is a minor annoyance for a tiny percentage of people who are exposed and develop HPV, it's a major problem. Right. But for everybody, if we can all just like join hands and get our kids vaccinated when they're 10, 11, 12 years old, it's a non-issue. Yeah. And I would say by majority, Dan, like more than 90% of us will have it come and go. We won't even know that it's there. And it's really that's even in that 10% of us that might have a persistent infection, again, um, a lot of folks, they might develop a genital wart, maybe they'll have an abnormal pap smear or something like that. But again, it doesn't cause cancer in almost, you know, the vast majority of the population. So and if, and if you get vaccinated, you're not getting cancer, you know, for the most part. Okay, so short answer, should this guy spend $1,000, uh, which is the price he was quoted by his doctor to yes. get the vaccinations, it depends how many sex partners he's had by age 50. If he's had only a few or none and he's about to get out there, it could be a good idea. Otherwise, he should save the money. I think so, yeah. I mean, especially if you've been very active in the past, you're really not going to get much benefit. Put that $1,000 elsewhere. Give it to abortionfunds.org. Oh my God, please do that. Here's what I wanted to to ask you about. Monkeypox. Yeah. I did uh, an opening rant at the top of the show about five, six weeks ago because mm-hmm. I saw a story that said, you know, monkeypox cases found in, you know, unexpected places. Monkeypox is a disease <laughs> endemic to West Africa, and it's usually only seen in people who've recently visited West Africa or Central Africa. And I saw this headline, and then I read the subhead and thought, you know, usually seen among travelers, and I thought a few people had gone to West Africa and come back and developed it in the West and, mm-hmm. you know, in 
the UK or Spain and the United States. And I didn't need to be concerned about this. And then I read the whole story because yeah. I had nothing better to do. And in the 16th paragraph, it said all the cases in this outbreak of, I think, mm-hmm. 100 people at that point among gay and bi men. And yeah. it really felt to me as a gay person mm-hmm. <laughs> that they were burying the lead here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. And they needed to raise the alarm so that gay people would know to be monitoring themselves for symptoms and staying away from big parties in May and June. Right. If they were you know, showing the early symptoms of this disease. What's the update now on where we are with monkeypox? Well, so we're up to over 5,000 cases. And when you said unusual places, that means two things to me, Dan, because not only is it unusual places, meaning countries where we've never seen it before, that's what's going on right now. Like 51 countries actually have monkeypox, which, and those are all countries that normally don't have cases. And by unusual places, I also mean where it's showing up. So people are getting it. Um, some are getting it from anal sex. And so it's showing up for folks who bought them for anal well, sex. Can you say gay people are getting it? Because it's 99% of these cases are in gay people, right? Gay people need to hear that. Yes, 99% of cases are in gay people, gay men who have sex with men. And people haven't made a comment, by the way, about transgender women, for example, who have sex with men. But for the most part, I think these are cis men who have sex with men. Um, Just a very small handful of cases in women, at least in the U.S. And I think at first people said, well, we don't want to stigmatize the community. And I was like, well, the community wants to know because people have been getting it in group sex venues, bathhouses for the places that still have those open. And then one of the things the CDC found where they're like, well, people are meeting their partners on apps. And I was like, well, that's everybody I know. (laughs) So if that's a risk factor. A new development. It's been really, you know, I lived through the HIV AIDS epidemic. Yeah. And at the beginning, public health officials, politicians didn't raise the alarm because they didn't really care whether we lived right. or died, right? It wasn't going right. to be prioritized. There was no education in the early years. The community right. had, the gay community had to pull together community yeah. organizations on its own to educate other gay men because nobody gave a shit about us. And now to watch mm-hmm. this unfold, to go from 100 cases to 5,000 cases in about six weeks, right. and for the alarm not to have been raised because they care about us too much, because they don't want to stigmatize gay sex by telling gay men the truth. My reaction six weeks ago was, what's going to be more stigmatizing? Them getting out in front of this and warning gay men? Or there being a worldwide monkeypox pandemic because they didn't want to hurt our feelings? (laughs) Right. Or hand a weapon to, you know, anti-gay bigots, which now they have a much bigger weapon. Now instead of a 100-case weapon, they have a 5,000 case. Over 5,000 cases um, around the world. So that's not that many compared to how many people in the world and how many gay men we have in the world. But um, It's a lot more than 100 six weeks ago. It's a lot more than 100. That's right. And so luckily, here's a couple things. Luckily, it's not as contagious as COVID. Um, it can be spread through respiratory droplets, you know? So like if you're in prolonged contact with somebody who had monkeypox, who was like, spitting, breathing, coughing, sneezing. But, you know, that's not the primary way this is being transmitted. This is acting like an STI. So, but let's say you're, you know, packed together on a dance floor and everyone's breathing heavily, jumping up and down, doing poppers and exhaling all over each other and making out with each other and grinding on each other. That's a pretty effective way to spread monkeypox. It's a very effective way. And that's the thing is that, you know, as you know, there are no gay diseases, right? But um, it just, monkeypox got into a network of people who were in close contact and changing partners frequently. 
you know, had this been just around like... See, that sounds know, like a gay... I'm sorry, that sounds like a gay disease to me. Like, <laughs> what we're supposed to say in the 80s, I was there, I said it too, and it was a lie then, was AIDS, does, HIV does not discriminate, it's not a gay right. disease, when the right. reality was anal sex was the most efficient mode of transmission for, for HIV, sure. mm-hmm. which is why when it got into gay communities, it just rocketed through them. That's and right. that was just a fact. And yeah. the fact here is, you know, it's not a gay disease, but it is getting, it's looking pretty gay with 99% <laughs> of cases being among yeah. gay, bi, and men who have sex with men. And that's because culturally, like anal most efficient mode of transmission for HIV, culturally, in gay sex communities, which have really revived since uh, protease inhibitors and PrEP yes, came for along, sure. mm-hmm. that the way so many gay men live, and I think it can be an awesome way to live, and it brings a lot of joy and pleasure into guys' lives and connection yeah. and intimacy and brotherhood, that, like anal sex being the most efficient mode of transmission, that kind of, I'm going to say the dread word, lifestyle, is a very efficient mode of transmission for monkeypox as we are seeing. Yes. And you don't even have to have anal sex. You can be, like, the the thing about this particular virus, Dan, that is really interesting is that it can live on your clothes. It can live on your sheets for weeks. And so what we're talking about here is, and also like I'm thinking fetish gear, dildos, like anything that you are sharing or rubbing up against. And so, yes, if you like to go to parties, if you like to congregate with people, if you're, you know, just like casually rubbing up against people, sharing a bed, even not having sex, you can get it that way. So even the, the whole toilet seat thing. Oh my God. We're doomed. I just got quoted actually for a piece around toilet seats. And I was saying, you can't get STIs and HIV from toilet seats or whatever. You know, monkeypox can live on surfaces. So I am a little bit concerned um, about that. And so that's why I'm telling like all my gay clients as well as my, um, you know, my patients who are trans women who have sex with men. I say, look, check yourself, check your partner. You see any red bumps? They're usually firm. They're almost always painful. Just don't go there. Don't have sex that night. You know, I know it's hard. Like, if you're really horny, I get it. And this is really contagious. And some guys, especially guys who've been bottoming for anal sex, when they're getting in the anal area, it's super painful. A couple guys have had to be hospitalized. It's not, you know. Okay, so I feel like we did it backwards. What is monkeypox? And what are the symptoms that people should be watching out for? We got the HPV convo a little uh, ass backwards. And we're going to do this one ass backwards, too. So... What is it and what are the symptoms that people should be watching out for? Okay, so it's a virus that's, you know, very closely related to smallpox, but thankfully not nearly as severe, but it causes these sort of red raised bumps. And typically it used to, you know, actually start more in the facial area and then spread to the hands. Right now where it's showing up is on people's penises, groin, weird. anal area. Weird. <laughs> I know. But How'd why? that happen? Uh-huh. <laughs> um And I think it can be so subtle. You know what I mean? We had a patient in our clinic who had just like one bump in the genital area, one bump on the neck, and that was it. So it can be very subtle. And and then it'll become sort of almost like a big pimple, what we call a pustule. And then the little pus on the surface of that is full of monkeypox. And then it'll burst. And then it'll get make a scab. And then when your new skin is healed over, you're completely not contagious. But that can take a couple weeks. And it can live on surfaces. That's what that's what's freaking me out. Like I know. you've got a particular pair of chaps you like to wear to your sex I parties know. and you got ground all over on the dance floor. People yeah. don't wash their chaps before they I go know. to their next event. I know. So this is the and this is the thing. So 
that's why I've been saying like, you know, coming up to, you know, pride, at least over here in San Francisco last weekend, just telling people, Hey, I know, I know it's like a light, slightly creepy to be like checking people out, you know what I mean? Before you get together with them, but this is the time to be inspecting folks before you hook up because I mean, hopefully the lights are, you know, the lighting is good enough for you to at least look down there. Very early HIV AIDS education materials when it was grid, when nobody knew what the hell was going on, gay related immunodeficiency. Yeah, I remember. Mm -hmm. One of the recommendations was like, turn the fucking lights on and have a look. You know, we didn't know then that it was in semen and bodily yeah. fluids. We didn't know then actually in some ways how difficult it was to transmit HIV. Right. It is. But if you were using a condom just for anal, you were very unlikely to contract it. You That's didn't right. even have to use a condom for oral to be safer, to have safer yeah. sex. But at first people were worried it might be skin to skin. It might be as easily transmissible right. as herpes. Uh, yeah. And so one of the recommendations was like, inspect each other's bodies first, which was super yeah. unsexy to think about. Yeah. And it made people paranoid. Like somebody had a pimple, somebody had, right. you know, a scrape and you, people would not have sex, which sort of disincentivized inspecting each other's bodies or having yours inspected. But this is a case. See, it seems to, uh, sometimes I'm, someone's going to jump down my throat for being conservative. Like <laughs> maybe we have a sex quarantine for a month. If this thing well, can't live past like, three weeks and everybody just put their pants on for three weeks and spent the month of July raising money for abortionfunds.org instead of going to sex parties. <laughs> we could get past this. We could get past this. But you know, the thing is, is like right now there's all these people in sort of different stages of the incubation process. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like it's so subtle. I mean, I hope if we can say turn the lights on and take a look, I would love to say that. You know what I mean? I do think that would help. You may not see it because it's so subtle, but if you notice something on yourself as well, you know, do the right thing, go in and get checked. You have to get swabbed with a um, with a PCR test, like similar to getting swabbed for COVID, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But we'll mm-hmm. swab the any sort of area that you have on your genitals and then you have to get a PCR test to confirm that that's what you have. Uh, it's very, very distressing. I, know. I, I feel like I've been clanging the alarm bell for, for weeks, not not on the show, yeah. but, but all by myself as quoted in a piece at NBC News. Yep, yep. It, it just feels like people aren't taking this seriously enough. And I'm having kind of weird flashbacks I to know. 1983 right. when it was clear from what we knew then that yeah. as gay men, you know, it was almost 21, 22 then. Yeah. that this was sexually transmitted. We were watching networks of guys who were connected sexually yeah. get sick and die. Die, right. And nobody wanted to stop the party. That's why Randy Schultz titled his terrific deep dive nonfiction account of the early part of the AIDS epidemic. And Randy Schultz didn't get everything right. You know, what he did right. to Goodtown Douglas wasn't okay. Yeah. But he titled that book and the band played yeah. on. Right. Because nobody wanted to call the party off. And I don't think monkeypox is going to become HIV, but no, not at all. It's not. It's not killing people. It's not, so. It's not killing people, Dan. But if anybody has to be put in the hospital for pain control because their rectum is so inflamed, like that's not good. We don't want to do that to our partners, right? So, um, I mean, I will say that it's not HIV, but it's you know the whole skin to skin thing and living on surfaces is making it challenging, right? And so is going to make it more transmissible than HIV. Because you actually had to like share semen, blood, whatever, you know, uh, infected fluids. 
in this case, you really just have to rub up against somebody. Which is gay baseball. You know, it's our, the gay <laughs> national pastime is rubbing up against each other. And I'm very much pro the rubbing up against each other. You know, sometimes when I talk this way, people think I'm calling for everyone to be monogamous right. uh, or to be abstinent. And I'm absolutely not. You know, the ability for gay men to have as many sex partners as we do, it's kind of a superpower and it's kind of awesome. And, you know, the two most important people in my life are people I met basically on one night stands and yeah. having impulsive sex. Uh, and those became relationships. And I don't want people to be deprived of those sorts of connections, even if they don't lead to LTRs, even right. if it's just pleasure in an evening for a couple of hours, that's right. a connection. But you can't be in denial about the epidemiological realities of like the more sex you have, the more sex partners you have, the greater right. risk you're at for STIs. That's not a sex phobic, homophobic plot. That's reality. And so we are, we have to be more responsible. We have to monitor our health. We have to go in for regular STI screenings. We have to watch out. And when something pops up like this, like meningitis in Florida, like monkeypox all over the world now, 5,000 cases, we need to, we need to take care of ourselves and take care of each other. And maybe that means uh, that the band stops playing for a little bit. So how can people protect themselves besides if you have symptoms, staying home, taking care of yourself? How can you protect yourself and others? Yeah. So, you know, either wearing a condom over the penis or like an internal condom inside the rectum will cover those areas. But unfortunately, the parts that aren't covered can still get exposed to the virus because, again, it's just skin to skin contact that transmits this. So like I'm always like the cheerleaders for condoms, but they may not, you know, completely help in this circumstance. I still say they're great, but, um, you know, for monkeypox, you can certainly get infected around areas that aren't covered by condoms. So just that's like my HIV, Just like HPV, just like HIV just uh, like HPV, and just, herpes. Just like herpes and, H and HPV, exactly. And, you know, CDC has some kind of funny guidance where they say, have sex with your clothes on. And I and so I asked a friend, I was like, what does that mean? Exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> last time I checked, you got to take off your clothes to have sex. So I guess if you enjoy just rubbing up against someone with your clothes on, but I don't know, most but most of us want to actually like have some sort of contact there, right? Maybe everybody should be getting into full gimp suits and gas masks That's at right. this stage. I don't know. I all know. these interlocking, overlapping pandemics that we're in. That's right. And so honestly, I think... I don't think this is going to completely pass and go away. I think right now it's in that sort of explosive phase, you know, and then it may just become like, oh, it's just another thing that we might be able to get. But I do think it's really behaving like an STI and that we ought to think about it that way. Dr. Ina Park, professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, medical consultant at the CDC Division of STD Prevention and author of, and you got to read it, it's hilarious and insightful and weirdly comforting about STDs, strange bedfellows, adventures in the science history and surprising secrets of STDs. Dr. Park, thank you so much for getting on the phone with me again. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Dan. It was great to see you. Hi, Dan. I'm the tech savvy at-risk youth, cis, het, woman in London, England. And I am wondering, when it comes to the end of relationships, I quite often have the urge to tell the other person all the things that I think they've done wrong. Just to just be like, oh, we're done. Okay, so here's my list of things to improve in the future, by the way. I don't do it because generally when you break up with someone, it means you don't really want to talk to them anymore. And, you know, you don't want to drag out that conversation. But I do wonder 
is there is is it ever worth doing that just saying you, you don't communicate well you are twisting my words you don't listen well you don't da 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 ever worth doing a list of things that your ex might be able to improve upon in the future that could make it possible for them to have a more successful long-term relationship well breakups usually don't come out of nowhere. When you break up with somebody, you've probably already had arguments about the fact that they weren't communicating well, they weren't listening, you were dissatisfied with X, Y, or Z, and you gave them the chance to make some improvements that would have made it possible for you to stay in the relationship. So when you break up with someone, you probably have already had these conversations, what they were doing wrong in the relationship, why you were dissatisfied. Rarely comes out of left field, that kind of breakup. If somebody breaks up with you and then you want to initiate a conversation about everything they were doing wrong, that's just going to play like, hey, you didn't fire me, I quit. You didn't break up with me, I'm breaking up with you. And the other person really isn't going to want to hear that. Even if you subject them to it, they're really not going to listen. So I don't see the upside if they dumped you. And I think the only time to have the kind of exit interview that you're proposing, where you really sit down with somebody and walk them through everything that they were doing wrong or the big things that they were doing wrong, because everybody does some things wrong in a relationship, is if they ask you. Sometimes when you break up with somebody, they see that there's a pattern. They see that they're driving people away. They see that they're having a problem sustaining long-term connections or even having successful short-term relationships that they're having relationships and everybody who leaves them is unhappy about having ever met them. And occasionally someone puts it together that they're the common denominator in a lot of failed relationships and they'd like to know what they're doing wrong. And they will reach out to an ex and ask, what did I do wrong. Now, it may be that you've already told them when you were, you know, working through the relationship and trying to save it and asking them to make improvements, and there may not be a point to having that kind of conversation with that kind of person. But every once in a while, someone is in a place where they need to hear it and they want to hear it and they're ready to hear it. What it was that they were doing wrong because they want to do better in the future because they want to make changes. Sometimes a person like that, you get that question during the breakup. Sometimes you hear from a person like that six months or a year after the breakup, maybe after they've gotten into therapy and they want to gut check what their therapist is telling them and the conclusions that they're coming to about what it is they've been doing wrong and what it is they need to do differently by having a conversation with an ex. And I think that's when you have that kind of conversation but I don't think you have that kind of conversation every time you end a relationship. And you certainly don't initiate that kind of conversation when someone else has dumped you. Again, that's just going to play like, hey, you're not firing me, I'm firing you. I am a 56-year-old straight woman. I'm very vanilla, but I love sex, and I'm frustrated that I can't seem to have more of it. I have been divorced for 21 years. Since then, I've dated a lot of people. I seem to consistently attract younger men Some of these have been actual relationships and some have just been hookups. My last relationship was in 2018 and I've had no sex between then and last fall. In the last six months, I've met two different guys, both in their late 20s. 
I met A at a nightclub. He just started flirting with me, asked me for my number, and texted me for a while. Eventually, we hooked up, and then I have not seen him since. The second guy is Jay. I met him with a group of his friends around a fire in December. We didn't interact one-on-one that night, but we started following each other on Instagram. He DM'd me about a month after the meeting, and I gave him my cell number. We started texting back and forth for about two weeks, and it became sexy really fast. We made plans to meet up when I came back from my business trip. The night we planned for our meetup, I was on my period. So I told him about it. He still wanted to meet if I did, or we could wait until I was completely good to go. So I said, let's meet to see if the attraction is there. I'm not promised anything and no pressure, but we can do other things. He kept checking in via text from work that day, which was really fun and built up the anticipation. After he arrived, there was lots of foreplay, which was great for me. I gave him a blowjob and he came in my mouth. As he was leaving, he said, next time it won't be so one-sided. I said, oh, you want to come back? And he said, yes, if you'll have me. Fast forward to three weeks later, and I didn't hear from him. So I texted, hey, I really liked the way you conducted yourself as we were planning our meetup. But are you feeling a little weird about the big age difference, even though it's just sex? I'm curious because we haven't met up again. This, I'm not his first encounter with an older woman. I believe the other woman was 40. His response was, hey, I really enjoyed it, and it's not an issue to me at all. I've just been kind of going through some stuff and trying to work on myself. Me, okay, I enjoyed it too. You can say, hey, if you want to come over again. Him, I'd like that, and I will absolutely let you know. So it's been about two months since Jay and I hooked up. Mostly, I'm taking him at his word, but a small part of me is feeling a little insecure, like maybe he and A both are not attracted enough to hook up again. Um, I don't like to initiate sex with men this young so as not to seem predatory. Uh, What is your advice to manifest more of this in my life? I would also love your feedback on the Jay situation. So, you went to a nightclub, you left with some 20-something dick. You went to a fire, you hung out at a fire, you left with some 20-something dick. You want my advice about how to manifest more dick in your life? You seem to be doing fine. I should be coming to you for advice on manifesting some 20-something dick in my life. Look, keep going to nightclubs. Keep hanging out around fires. Go for broke. Set fire to some nightclubs. See how much dick you get then. The lesson here isn't, you know, it's sad and it's tragic that you hooked up with these two guys who may have been taking a walk on the much older woman wild side and they don't want to hook up with you again. And so you should sit at home wondering what went wrong or wondering what happened or wondering where they and their dicks are now. The lesson here is to keep leaving the house. You've had a lot of success lately. Leaving the house. Go to nightclubs. Go to more fires. Put yourself out there in the world and see who you might meet next. Look, yeah, specifically for me to comment on the Jay situation, here's my blazing insight. This is why I have an advice podcast. This is why people come to me for advice. Either Jay didn't want to fuck you again or Jay couldn't fuck you again. Couldn't. Maybe his dick fell off. Maybe his girlfriend found out if he has a partner that he cheated and he's dealing with the fallout of that, or maybe he just wasn't into you. That sometimes happens. That is a risk we all take when we hook up with somebody for the first time, that however good we might feel about it, they might feel less good about it. However excited we are 
to see them again. They may not be so excited to see us again. And if emotionally we can't handle that kind of rejection, and rejection is hard and it sucks, but if we can't take it, not I don't want to say take it in stride. I don't want to say let it run off your back. You know, you have to like take it in. You have to feel your feelings. But if you're going to obsess over that kind of rejection, well, then you shouldn't be hooking up with randos or anyone at all because that kind of rejection is always a risk. Jay knows you'd like to see him again. Balls in his court. Stop thinking about Jay. A presumably knows you would have liked to see his dick again too. Balls in A's court. Stop obsessing about where A and his dick are now and get the fuck out of the house. Do some online dating, put some ads up, go to some nightclubs, set some fires. You always have good luck at nightclubs and fires and move on. Move on to some new dick. Move on to some new guys who might like to see you more than once. And don't waste one more precious minute wondering about where Jay is now and why Jay isn't on his knees in your apartment eating your pussy, which he kind of owed you some moral after you went down on him, and get back out there. All right, before we get to this week's listener feedback calls, let's read some listener tweets. Kelly Folkers tweets, Dan's monologue at the top of the Lovecast last week was the first thing I've heard since the Dobbs decision was released that made me feel hopeful. We will fight to reverse this decision, and in the meantime, we will get pills and boarding passes to those who need them. I'm going to plug them again, abortionfunds.org. Please join me and Terry in making a monthly donation. And all the info you need about medication abortion is available at plancpills.org. Laura Duck tweets, hey Dan, I'm a 41-year-old sexually confused lady, and I'm wondering if it's possible to find women attractive, but to rather have sex with men. Not only is it possible, you're already doing it. You're doing it right now. It's also really common for bi people to have a preference for men over women or women over men or one particular flavor of gender expression or presentation over all other flavors. Also possible for omnis, pans, pomos, and polys. Really Ed Brown tweets, listening to fake Dan Savage talk to opera sensation Jamie Barton at J. Barton Mezzo about rough blowjobs on the Savage Lovecast absolute joy. Jamie needs to be on regularly. I completely agree, Ed. I can't wait to have Jamie Barton back on the show. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, please remember to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to Scott, Jacqueline, and Go North, who all tweeted about becoming Magnum subs this week. We appreciate your support and the support of all our Magnum subs and all our listeners, period, micro, or Magnum. All right, on to listener feedback. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a comment about the caller who wanted to know if having sex while on the phone was a consent violation. And I agree with you that it isn't if it's secret, but the issue is if it isn't secret. I have gotten those calls before where people are clearly having sex. And as a single woman who lives alone, it's super creepy. Like, I felt very violated from those calls and scared and wondering if, like, I was targeted maybe. I mean, it hasn't happened a lot, but it's happened, like, twice in my life and really made me feel kind of squicky and violated. So, yeah, I would say this is an example of being a man versus being a woman in that, like, men often don't think about their personal safety in that way, but for women... 
if a woman got that call, especially like a random woman, I think that it would be very, very creepy. So I would say as long as people don't know that he's having sex, it's fine. But with how he sounded and everything, no, he shouldn't do that. It's not okay. I have two quick comments for the guy who is being abused or defamed by these people in his town who are saying that he was an abuser and a a gaslighter. And the first is they likely won't believe anything that his ex-wife says, even if she addresses them, because they'll probably believe that she's either being manipulated and or gaslighted by him again, or even just sort of threatened, even though obviously that's not the vein in which you would speak to her. And the second point is, if what they're doing is truly impacting him, which it clearly is if he's thinking about moving, that's defamation. And defamation is actually something that he could sue over. Don't know that you necessarily want to go that route, but he should probably talk to a lawyer. Maybe they can do some sort of cease and desist. I'm sure that will only amp these people up even more. But if it's really, really that bad and it's impacting his ability to co-parent with his ex-wife, this might be something that he considers suing over. Hello, this is a listener response call for the woman who was worried about misgendering the dog walker in episode 818. Um, Dan is right on. There's two options. You can either you can avoid it or just assume. But you can also just ask. Um, something similar happened to my girlfriend and I. We were working an event. She is pretty butch, uh, dresses like a tomboy. And we were working with this woman for, you know, the state of two hours. Didn't know her very well. And this woman, we introduced ourselves, and she just goes, my girlfriend, and what are your pronouns? And, you know, my girlfriend's like, oh, she, her, and yours. And the girl was like, same. And we carried about our event, all was well. Um, and I promise it was not awkward at all. So just like how you get used to using gender-neutral pronouns, like they, them, you can also get used to just asking. Um, and later on, my girlfriend said, wow, that was really nice. I really appreciated that she asked. So can make someone say. And we're going to leave it there right there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. Sack Lunch, my monthly hangout exclusively for Magnum Subs, is this Thursday, July 7th at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. I'll be answering questions live from Magnum Subs and inviting volunteer Magnum Subs to jump in and give some advice themselves. It's always a lot of fun. If you're not already a Magnum Sub, become a Magnum Sub today at savage.love slash lovecast and join us for this month's Sack Lunch. National Vanilla Ice Cream Day is coming up July 23rd. Can't think of a better, kinkier, more perverted way to celebrate National Vanilla Ice Cream Day than by eating vanilla ice cream out of one of our gorgeous, good giving and game mugs that you can order now at savage.love slash shop. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Ina Park on Twitter at InaParkMD. You can also follow now the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth on Twitter. Follow them at Lovecast, T-S-A-R-Y. T-S-A-R-Y stands for, of course, Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. They've been on Twitter forever. They were beta Twitter testers, but now they've got a group account, and you should go follow them. You should also know that the Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week on installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading, and thank you for donating. Abortionfunds.org.